Thank you, Ken. Thank you, wonderful musicians. I tell you, I don't know if it's just me in need of it, but uh, this morning at the West Campus and then this morning, music just touched my heart. I'm telling you, it was just wonderful. Thank you for those of you who invest your time and talent in providing such a marvelous worship atmosphere for all of us to uh, experience. So thank you. I, I know things like that don't just happen. It takes a lot of commitment on the part of people. Well, if you have your Bibles, we find the book of Nehemiah, and then you just hold there if you have an iPhone or an iPad. Last week, we started in the book of Nehemiah, and this morning, we're going to continue. And for the next several weeks, we'll be in and out of that book as we talk about continuing our legacy, as we talk about leaving a legacy, as we talk about our capital fund program that we're in the midst of. And the, what we're doing is we're asking you to pray about uh, your commitment I don't want you to just write a check and feel like that uh, you've done your obligation. Money is involved. The church is like any other organization. We have bills. Everything for the church is not free. <laughs> In fact, some folks find out it's the church they charge extra, I found out over the years. And so what we want you to do is pray about what your commitment might be. And last week in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4, we understood that's what Nehemiah did. When he heard his brother had come and told him of the remnant of the Jews that had gone back to Jerusalem after the exile, and uh, he told him, he said, Jerusalem's a mess. The walls are down. The gates have been burned with fire. It's, it, it's just a terrible, terrible situation. And so when he told him that, Nehemiah fasted and prayed, and you have to kind of do a little study to get behind it. He prayed for four months. Four months. You know, some of us feel like if it's 15 minutes, it's an imposition. He prayed for four months. As God put on his heart something that God wanted him to do. And so once that happened, then Nehemiah had an opportunity to talk to Artaxerxes, who was the king. Uh, Nehemiah was in his... He was a close right-hand aide to Artaxerxes, and so he was trusted. He came from a prominent family, we suspect, and because of that, he had some standing, even though the king was not a godly king as such. And so he waits until this time that God had for him to go and talk to the king. Now, if you go back and read the book of Ezra, chapter 4, you'll find out that uh, there's others had approached the king about rebuilding Jerusalem. He told them no. In fact, he told them to cease and stop, and he sent troops in there to stop it. So Nehemiah had to pick his time. And it's interesting if you read the, the, the verses and get behind the verses, he, he approaches the king and the queen's there. Now you have to understand what that means. It was a private meeting. He didn't go before the king and the full council of all the other politicians and influential people. It was a private session with the queen, and he talked to the king about the situation that, he was, he, that God had put on his heart, and God had already prepared Artaxerxes in this private moment to say, yes, I want to help you. And if you remember the message from last week, oh, it was so good. I just hope you remember it. It started with prayer. Nehemiah prayed, chapter 1, verse 4, generally, this is the need. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4, what am I supposed to do when he was put on the spot by Artaxerxes and say, son, what do you want me to do? Nehemiah had to tell him, I make a commitment to go back and rebuild the walls. Will you help me? And so he had, first of all, prayer. Then he had permission. 
The king gave him permission to go back and, and to do it. But not only did he give him permission, he gave him provisions. He gave him the very materials they're going to do, or use to rebuild the wall and the gates. Isn't that amazing? The king provided it. Just like the king of kings is providing for us. He's going to provide for us. God's work never lacks God's support done in God's time by God's people, period. It's just period. That's how God does things. He doesn't float down a bank account from heaven. He gives it through God's people when they pray and ask God, what do you want me to do? And God will tell you. And then when you're obedient to that is when the work gets done. So he had prayer. He had permission. He had provision. But he also had protection. You remember I told you he gave him letters. King gave him letters. So as he passed through the different different governing territories, uh, he could flash his customs card and say, you know, I'm here. The king said, I can pass through. And he also sent an honor guard with him. And I told you, and, and later on we'll find out this in Nehemiah, that Nehemiah was made the governor of Jerusalem. All of this happened in the providence of God. That gets us down to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 9. So this morning, we're going to start in Nehemiah 2, verse 11. Did you catch that? We're not going to start in verse 10. I'm going to come back to verse 10 next week. So Nehemiah 2, verse 11. Follow along with me as I read. If you follow along in your iPad, your iPhone, or if you're an old geezer like me, have a Bible. That'll be fine, too. Verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, and I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then I, uh, then went I up to the, uh, by, in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, See ye the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God which was good upon me as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me and they said notice verse 18 I told them then they said let us rise up and build so they strengthened their hands for this good work this morning I want you to see the continuation last week I told you how to start a building program This morning, I want you to see how to build in a building program. It's a continuation as will most of these messages over the next few weeks. How to build in a building program. What is the first thing Nehemiah did? 
What is the first thing you ought to do? Now, folks, listen to me very carefully. What I'm going to tell you this morning is an actual, factual account of what happened at Jerusalem with Nehemiah. This actually happened. This is not a fantasy. This is not a story made up by somebody. This is history. This actually happened. But the principles involved here translate to any situation. So when you have a particular problem, there are things that are outlined here in Nehemiah chapter 2 that you should use to uh, identify problems that you have and, and help to solve problems. I have used this time after time after time in the work that I have been in over the years. And it never fails because it's yea and amen in Jesus Christ. It's biblical principles of how to deal with any kind of problem that you have. And so what is the first thing Nehemiah does? After he's prayed, after he sought the help of the king, what's the first thing he does? Observation. He goes to Jerusalem and actually looks at the situation. It's one thing for somebody to tell you something about how bad something is, but it's something else for you to see it. I was talking with someone this morning who was talking about their husband had gone to Puerto Rico to try to help out down there and the devastation that's there. And her comment to me was, you just can't believe it. When you, I mean, you see it on TV and you hear about it, but when you go down there, you just can't believe it. I remember I went in 1992 down to, uh, after Andrew went through South Florida. And, and I'd been in meetings. We had talked about disaster relief. I was helping with disaster relief. I was sending assets and materials all over that part of the state down there with Dr. Sullivan. But I had to go down there for something. And so I'm riding down the highway and, I mean, it's gone. There are no leaves on the trees. There's places there's no grass. That thing tore up everything. And in the distance, I see something that's odd. What is that? Because everything's just flat and there's something standing up. What is that? And the closer I got to it, I realized it was a bank vault. The bank was gone. But the vault was there. That still sticks in my mind. So when people say, boy, that was a bad hurricane, wasn't it? <laughs> Let me tell you how bad it was. There's nothing left but a bank vault. There's something about seeing things firsthand that freed it home to your heart as to what the real need is. Nehemiah didn't go off hack-cock based on what he'd been told. He went to observe to see what the need was. Have you looked around lately at the need Folks, I don't want to take advantage of a situation, but as a preacher of the gospel, I'm trying to be practical with you. This horrible situation in Las Vegas. Can you imagine? Have you looked around at what's happening in our society? A guy checks into a hotel, busts out the windows, and then just sprays a crowd of 22,000 people with 1,000 rounds of ammunition. Just sprays the crowd. I know he had the bump stock and all of that. He didn't care. He wasn't aiming. He was just trying to inflict as much damage as he could with an automatic weapon. Don't be surprised. We don't know yet. But don't be surprised if the motivation's not religion. Or a lack of thereof. 
Don't be surprised. You're going to hear a lot of the pundits tell you a lot of stuff. But what is in the heart of a human being to do that? I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is not in that heart. I'm just telling you that, and you can take that to the bank. Have you looked around at the needs where you live, where I live? Do you pay attention to what is happening? Do, do you re- have you observed what's going on? In the Bible, the Bible is always literal and figurative at the same time. There are literal things that have a figurative meaning. In Jerusalem, the walls are down and the gates have been burned with fire. Now listen to me. In biblical terminology, the gates stand for the glory of God. When they built a gate, it was not just a gate. It was, it was beautiful. They would inlay precious metal on it. It would have designed into it things like uh, fruits and plentiness and, 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 and the king's image and all this. The, the gates were symbolic of the glory of whatever they were talking about. So the gates translated are, are there for the glory of God. The walls are there for what? The protection. Ladies and gentlemen, the walls in America are down. We now are having attacks inside this nation. Not from without, inside this nation. The walls are down. But also the glory of God is departing this nation. Oh, we'll all get huddled after something like this and pray and then within two hours make politics out of it just chaps me to no end. And if you think I'm being political, you come up here and apologize to me when it's over with and I'll forgive you. Look around. This world is in a mess. And the only thing that's going to change it is changing the heart of man. You can legislate gun control all you want to. You can legislate and give education. You can give welfare. You can try to extract people up out of their poverty. You can do all of those things. But until you change the heart of man, man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Look around. Why do you think we're in a building program? You think we have nothing better to do? Why don't we just hunker down here and die? We're doing what we're doing because God's led us to go out and be aggressive and reach a whole generation for Jesus Christ. And they're not here. They're out there. Why do you think we're spending the money? Why do you think we're spending the time? Why do you think we're asking you to pray about that? Have you looked around and seen what's going on? And has God put it in your heart for you to be a part of reversing the trend of what's going on? That's what we're asking you to do. I don't want you to write a check and make yourself feel good about it. I want you to pray about, God, what would you have me to do? Because anything I can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of. And if you make a commitment based on me or any other thing, guilt or whatever, you won't carry through with it. But if God puts it on your heart, after you've observed what's going on, you'll carry forward with it. And that's what we want. So first of all, Nehemiah what? Observation. But second of all, communication. Nehemiah knew he could not accomplish this alone. 
Ministry is not a one-man show. It's not all about the pastor. Or in this case, thank God, it's not all about the interim pastor. It's not about the staff. It's not about the deacons or the Sunday school teachers. It's about us. Nehemiah knew he could not do this by himself. He needed everyone. And to do that, he had to communicate the vision to the people. Now, this is where things get a little antsy sometime at church. Pastors are visionary people. By their very nature, God put that in their heart. They're looking over the next horizon. They're seeing out there. That's why they never seem to be satisfied with standing still. You shouldn't be satisfied by standing still spiritually. But so often, the people that God's man is leading are not visionary. They're just not. They don't have that gear. And so the leader has to communicate. He has to teach the people, help the people to see what the vision is. Nehemiah had a vision. God had given it to him. But if you read carefully, Nehemiah does not share what the vision is until he first goes and observes and sees how bad it really is. Then he's able, number two, to communicate. You see, there's observation, but there's also communication. And he does it in a masterful way. He reminds the people of what God had done. Now, folks, listen. The walls have been down 140 years. 140 years. The project had stalled, so to speak. We've been waiting 17 years. The project has stalled, so to speak. But just like Nehemiah got it accomplished, bless God, we are going to get it accomplished. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But it's going to happen because you catch the vision. The vision of what can happen, what should happen, because of what God had done. He reminded them of what the king had said. Verse 18, he says, he reminds them of the king's words. Now, I told you before, in Ezra chapter 4, they had asked the king before and he had said no. Now he says yes. So he reminded them of the fact the king's provision, the king's protection, the king's permit. He reminded, he took them back in order to lead them forward. Look what God has done in this church. Look around. God has led us and blessed us in marvelous ways. Do you think he's ready to stop? Folks, I've been around a while. I've been around this world halfway into Kentucky. I mean, I've been around. You haven't seen the blessings of God like you're going to see them. You just hadn't seen them. With what they're telling us about the population growth, who is that going to be? Young couples with children? Young couples who probably do not have any affiliation with the church because they're growing up in a society that has no affiliation with church? What an opportunity. You know, years ago, there was a man that was hired by a company to go to Africa to sell shoes. 
And so they sent him over there with a very nice contract and said, sell all your shoes you can, we'll make you a millionaire. Well, he was there about two months, and he called the company back, and he said, this, this, this isn't working. He said, what do you mean? He said, nobody here wears shoes. Yes. These young people haven't heard the gospel, many of them. They're growing up in a society that's anti-gospel. What an opportunity for the church to be right in the middle of that. They sent another guy. He had a different perspective. He was there, same period of time. He wrote back and he said, nobody here wears shoes. Send me a million pair. You see, it's all how you look at the situation. The situation is we're going into a society that's hostile to the gospel. But greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And because of that, because of the fact that we've observed it, we know what's going on to some degree, what we're doing now is communicating to you what the need is. We want you to pray about what God would have you to do to make the commitment and make the project viable. We're going. But any amount of money that you give us helps to either cut down on the debt that we will incur or, or get us into the second and third and whatever else building faster. We're going. You voted that. We're going. It's just how quickly we can have everything in place is what we're waiting on God to see. So there was communication. There was observation But last of all, there was cooperation. Notice in verse 18. He says, then I told them. That's the first part. The last part, and they said. Nehemiah says, I told them. They said. What had Nehemiah done? He reminded them of the good hand of God that was upon them. And when he did that, the people remembered what God had done how God had led, how God had blessed. He took them back in order to take them forward. And the people said, we will arise and build. They also, Nehemiah says, we need to arise and build so that we're no longer a reproach to God. God's glory and God's protection have been gone for 140 years. It's high time we put God back on the throne. It's high time we seek God's protection. It seems high time that we get back in the good graces of God. Cooperation. I know a little bit about cooperation. Having worked at the Florida Baptist Convention, the first job I had when I went to Florida as the assistant executive director was to go to churches that were asking for loans and grants. We were in a program at that time where we gave loans and grants to churches that could not commercially get them. Uh, they would not pass the scrutiny of a lending institution. At the convention, we, we were not under banking rules, and the executive director, Dr. Sullivan, could give a moratorium anytime on a loan if a church got into trouble. It, it was a great, great aid package for churches. Well, it was my job to go to any church that did not meet a certain criteria of cooperative program giving, which is the funding mechanism and the organization mechanism that we as Southern Baptists believe in. And so Susan was still in Atlanta, and for six months I got to cover the entire state 
I guess I spoke 200 times in churches on the cooperative program. It was a great learning experience for me. The first Sunday, the first Sunday I went to South Florida, I preached six times in six different churches, and none of them were English. Welcome to Florida. It was great for me. It was great for me. But I learned something very valuable. We would give a loan or a grant to a church, and they would promise to in friendly cooperation to start contributing to the mission endeavor called the cooperative program. In other words, they were receiving from us. They ought to give something back so that others can go. And, and we had a, a commitment time on that. Well, let me tell you what would happen. We would make the loan, the grant, they would start giving. The moment the loan was paid off, they stopped. I'd go back to those churches and they said, well, we paid that off. What? You what? After, after, after you've been a part of this and, and you had the ability to give and you gave and the church has been blessed and the church is growing and then all of a sudden you stop that? I learned something very valuable. I have never forgotten it to this day. You can't buy cooperation. You can't buy cooperation. Cooperation is something that happens in here, not back here. You can't buy cooperation, but sweet friend, let me tell you something. You can invest through cooperation to get something done that's bigger than you are. You're not paying off something for God when you give through a capital campaign like this. You're not even giving to the church. You're investing in the future of lives of people who will hear the gospel maybe for the first time. You think I'm kidding you? Those of you who are not soul winners probably don't understand this. I have in the last few years visited with people who have never heard the gospel and they live in Jacksonville, Orlando, St. Petersburg, Naples, Tallahassee. I don't that's not unusual. Tallahassee. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. We think everybody understands this. They don't. There's a disconnect between the cross and Jesus Christ and how it affects any life. It's a disconnect. They have no connection between the two. That's why people live like they live today. Live fast die young, and leave a beautiful corpse. If there is no God, that's not a bad way to live. But sweet friend, if there is a God, and you meet him one split second after you close your eyes here in death, that is a terrible, awful, frightful way to live and die. There is a God. He had one son. And that exclusivity of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection changes everything. Why are we building a church? Because there are people that need to hear the good news. Just like that poor, deluded fool in Las Vegas. People know, need to know what true love, forgiveness, and mercy and who God really is.
And one day you will stand in judgment before him. The Bible says there's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. This gentleman, along with Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, Osama bin Laden, will one day bow knee. They'll bow knee. And they will realize their life was a waste. A huge, huge waste. Invest in something that will outlive you. Invest in the gospel and the physical location for which we will send out people to tell a lost, dying world that not only is God not mad at them, he loves them. Not this much, but this much. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're talking about a building and a building program, but it's really much bigger than that. We're talking about investing in facilities that will be the headquarters, will be the nerve center for reaching a city, a, a county, even a whole section of a state. And because we're cooperating, Baptists, a whole state, a whole nation, and literally around the world. What an awesome responsibility. What a blessed privilege. So, Lord, in these days of praying, leading up to whatever commitment people will make, I pray people will take seriously what Nehemiah said, let us arise and build. Today, if there's somebody here who's never trusted Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior, I pray today they would understand that Jesus is not a good way to heaven. Jesus is not even the best way to heaven. According to Acts 4.12, he is the only way to heaven, for neither is there salvation in any other. I pray that people today's hearts who are without Christ would be open to the prompting of your spirit to tell them this is the day, this is the time, this is the hour to say yes to Christ. Confess their sins and turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. I pray today would be that day for, for someone who's listening this morning to your spirit. Maybe there are others that need to come and unite with this church. They've been visiting for some while, some while and they want to be a part of a church that has an audacious plan to reach a whole section of this state personally with the gospel through every door. No place left where the gospel is not heard because of the commitment of a church. There are people who want to be a part of something like that. I pray this morning you'd give them to this church by letter, statement, or any other way this church would receive members. I pray for others this morning. It's been a difficult week for many. Loss of loved one, a doctor's report, a wayward child, a financial setback, or just the pressures of living in this world. The reality of the fact that there is evil in this world and it manifests itself far more often than it should. And maybe some just need to come and kneel at this altar and just say, Lord, thank you for your presence in my life. Thank you for helping me through whatever this is I'm going through. I know you're there. I pray your spirit would manifest itself in my life and give me the strength and the fortitude and the courage to live for you, even in the midst of what is dogging my trail. 
what is causing me to be fearful and concerned and anxious. Lord, any other decision this day that will honor Jesus Christ in advance, I thank you for it. And I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to sing an invitation hymn. It's exactly what it sounds like. We're inviting you to respond to what God has said to you this morning. If God has asked you to do something, to respond in a certain way, that's what you ought to do. This is that time where we're inviting you. This has been on me and him. (laughs) Amen. Now it's on you. The ball's in your court. What will you do with what you've heard? What will you do with what you've felt? What will you do with what you know about you and God? This is that time. So as we sing our invitation hymn, there's trained people who will meet you here. The altar is, of course, open if you need to come. You come today. Say yes to Christ. We're singing now. We're standing. And we're singing. You come.